This is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can. Always give love the upper hand. Paint a wall, learn to dance, call your mom, buy a boat, drink a beer, sing a song, make a friend. Hi, Brendan. So what are we talking about this week? Well, before we get into what we're going to talk about this week, (laughs) I feel like we have to, for all our listeners out there, uh, we're new to this podcasting thing, and we've learned a lot over the last week or so that we've been doing this, and a lot of it has been good stuff, right? How to how to upload a podcast and, you know, splice it music, shout out Matt Dwyer for doing that, and then, you know, got it uploaded to Spotify and Apple and all these cool places, shout out to you for doing that, it was great, and so we're learning a lot about, you know, the podcasting business, and, uh, you know, with that comes positives and negatives, and we tried to record this podcast uh, a few days ago, and we sat here and talked for a long time and then at the end we realized that we hadn't hit record so we're going to do this take two uh so for a couple of these segments you're going to get uh our rehashed conversation um in some ways i think that could be beneficial um but i guess we'll see how it turns out but that's just kind of the you know the learning curve as new podcasters that we have uh, so this week, the plan is we're going, the big theme for the week is law and order, and we're going to look at that through the lens of the presidential election. We're going to look at that uh, through some of the unrest that's happening in um, largely Democratic-led cities, and we're going to look in particular at a couple of incidents that have happened you know, in the past few weeks um, to kind of see how law and order is playing out on a large-scale, big-picture, theoretical uh, plane, but also on a really small-scale um, in our neighborhoods with actual people type thing. Um, but, but before we get into all that, uh, we're going to look back at the Massachusetts primary election, which was last week. Uh, while there were a number of races um, on the ballot that you know we, we'll maybe touch on, the big race, and we talked about this last week, was uh, the primary, the Democratic primary for the Senate race uh, between Senator Ed Markey and Representative Joe Kennedy III, which... You know, Ed Markey ended up winning. He had a fairly decisive 11-point victory. Um, and so, Ricky, you, you had said last week that you had already voted for him. You know, thoughts as a voter for Markey, as a progressive, uh, on his victory last week. Yeah. I mean, I guess first I'll say I'm glad that you got my uh, colossal fuck-up on the on the record. You had to, for, right? For <laughs> you can't just pretend it never happened. That's yeah. true. That's true. I guess, you know... For anybody who ever listens to this, <laughs> just know if this episode doesn't quite meet the uh, the billing. <laughs> the high last, bar we set on the first Last one. week we had right. some gems that were on I know, it's, that's always the way, right? Yeah. All right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the so I did vote for, for Marky earlier. I think we talked a little bit about um, how, you know, in this race for me, there was very little differentiating them from a policy standpoint. And realistically, um, I, yeah, I mean, I guess to boil it down, it's, it's, it's a vote for experience, um, over new energy kind of thing. I think, uh, there, there are some reasons that it just, it felt odd that Kennedy was running in this, in this race to begin with. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we talked last week that it was very much, it seemed like this was a move for Joe Kennedy, the politician, as opposed to 
you know, voters of Massachusetts writ large, the United States at large. Uh, but that kind of leads me into something I wanted to talk about, which is the campaigns of Markey and Kennedy and why they're so different. And I think even the fact that you and I sat here and said that this seemed to be a move for Joe Kennedy means that his campaign had failed because he wasn't ever able to articulate a really legitimate reason for running. And we're sitting here a week after the election, and you just said, didn't really seem like, I don't know why Kennedy was running. And that's a failure of his campaign. I think Markey's campaign did an excellent job branding Ed Markey as this kind of hip, progressive, you know, leading figure of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, where, we talked last week, where he's been in Congress since 1976, and was a nobody until he sponsored the Green, co-sponsored the Green New Deal a couple years ago. Now he's got, you know, the hotshot AOC uh cutting commercials for him and he's out there in his sneakers and he's got all this energy what i mean it's a it's a credit to the campaign for being able to him to brand marky as such but you know he's not some guy that has a 40-year record of championing progressive causes yeah yeah that's i mean that's definitely an interesting point something that um i really kind of neglected to to dive into is that you know marky is signed on to the crime bill he was he voted for in favor of the iraq war like all sorts of things that we kind of hang progressives out to dry on and like if you're giving them the bernie sanders litmus test like actually marky doesn't really um outside of the last like four years maybe he doesn't really qualify um i'd say credit to to kennedy for not really running a campaign that's trying to paint marky by kind of his earlier positions see i don't i don't think it's a credit i think he wanted to and just failed to do it effectively so so that's so that's interesting because i think he still recognizes that marky has gotten the backing of some of these the new sort of celebrity freshman congressmen and he doesn't necessarily want to be sort of ruled out by them in the future and i think part of his strategy was not to um, alienate in many ways. I mean, we talked about this before that he ran on his name is what really gets him on the ballot as a Senate candidate, you know, a candidate for the Senate in Massachusetts without, um, kind of that Kennedy celebrity status. He's not going to qualify really as a 39 year old congressman with, with what's he had four years, two years in Congress. He's been um, there for a little bit. I think maybe twenty. Okay, sorry. No, maybe he yeah. started when he was like 29, 30. I think it was, yeah, I think he's been in Congress for six years maybe. Okay. But don't quote me on that. Um, all right. So he's been in Congress for a little while, but again, he only gets to Congress at age 30 because of his last name. So um, one thing that that's interesting that Markey himself didn't do and actually in his um, – in his acceptance speech, he want, he he made sure to mention that uh, you know the the senior Kennedys are are a big part of the reason that he got into politics in the first place. So Markey himself didn't go after Kennedy for his last name directly, in in so many words. But his campaign, or sort of the the surrogates and the people that were using social media on his behalf, really did a good job energizing. Um, the base, the progressive base, by essentially saying you don't want another, you know, American dynasty uh, ascending to uh, 
an important position in politics because that's going to lead to sort of the same old thing that we've seen before. Yeah, so I think that's a fair point and something that we've seen in a lot of media outlets. Um, you know, you kind of mocked my music selections from last week, which included Taylor Swift's The Last Great American Dynasty. But there have been, you know, a plethora of you know, really obituaries for the Kennedy dynasty over the last week. Uh, you know, it's the first time Kennedy has ever lost a race in Massachusetts, and it's a big deal. Uh, but back to your point about, you know, voters rejecting this idea of a dynasty and... You know, that's not an uncommon kind of take on, on the results of the election. And so there's an article in the Washington Post, um, I'm going to quote from it, uh, because in Kennedy's speech, he essentially said that he didn't expect his name to get brought up as much as it did. And the quote from the article says, that name was pretty much the only thing that made his challenge plausible, wasn't it? Why else would a 39-year-old congressman think he could unseat a long-serving, well-liked senator with whom he had basically nothing by the way of ideological disagreement? No one thought Kennedy ran because of his conviction that Markey had been in Washington for too long. His uncle, Edward Kennedy, served in the Senate for nearly 47 years. He ran because he thought a decade was long enough for the Kennedys not to hold a seat. The time for restoration was at hand. In the end, Massachusetts Democrats didn't really reject Kennedy or his family's long and distinguished legacy, both of which they still seemed to like well enough. What they rejected was a garish, undisguised display of political entitlement. So that was the the quote from the article. And the premise of the article is that America is kind of done with political dynasties, pretty much as, as you said. And the article goes to tie in, you know, the Trump children and how, you know, President Trump's trying to create a political dynasty and America doesn't seem to want that. Uh, I'm curious, do you really think a lot of Massachusetts voters, how much if at all, do you think that really entered into their thinking when voting for Markey? I think the answer is probably mixed. Um, I think there are certainly voters that fall into the sort of the first camp that you mentioned, which were like, you know, the only reason that Kennedy is able to run is because of his name. And he really doesn't have uh, the resume to, to be a senator. I think that certainly uh, played into... Um, some of the votes here. I don't necessarily know that that's anti-dynasty so much as it is anti, I don't know if youth is the right word. Entitlement. But yeah, entitle, yeah, entitlement, certainly. Um, inexperience. Uh, you know, who's who's going to be the best champion for these causes? Who has, you know, actual relationships in the Senate that's going to be marquee over Kennedy every time? I think that, you know... That's sort of one side of it. And then the other side of it is that you do have the new wave of progressives, of young progressives um, led by AOC, Ayanna Presley, and the rest of the squad in Congress um, that really came into power on, on sort of an anti-establishment wave. Um, so I think it's part of it, but, but doesn't really tell the whole story. Totally agree. I actually think if it's a part of it, it's a tiny part of it. And... You alluded to this, but if you look at the map of, you know, where did Markey win big? He won big just west of Boston and then way out west towards New York. So he's winning the most liberal places in Massachusetts. And largely, these are, you know, white progressives there. Um, And if you think about, you know, what Markey represents, you know, what he's most famous for is sponsoring the Green New Deal, which, you know, climate change has no effect as or has equal effect on you know, race, gender, class, right? It affects everyone. It's an existential crisis. But it's something that I think 
wealthier, whiter progressives can afford to concern themselves with a lot more than a large core of the Democratic base. And you can certainly disagree there, but if you look at where Kennedy won, Kennedy wins uh, Chelsea, Revere, Lynn, he wins Lowell, uh, Springfield, Worcester, Brockton, uh, Fall River. He wins all of these working class, largely minority Democratic strongholds. And I think this is where the Kennedy campaign failed is, you know, what he should have said is he's running for the people that don't really have a voice, whose biggest priority might not be the Green New Deal. Maybe it's, I want better education, I need better jobs, I need better housing. And Markey's, you know, writing these plans that are never going to come to fruition. So uh, that's why I think it's, I voted for Kennedy. I'm, I'm disappointed in that sense that he didn't win. And I'm disappointed in his campaign that they weren't able to go, you know, show that the reason they were running was not because he was, you know, this young voice that was trying to, you know, bring new energy. It was because he was running on behalf of these people that are maybe not being represented as well as they could be under someone like Ed Markey. Um, I mean, to that extent, then in many ways, the the biggest failing of the Kennedy candidacy is something that's out of his control. And it's really the fact that he's just another white person running to represent neighborhoods that he, you know, he looks like in part, but in in many ways he really doesn't. And so if you want to energize that other group that really, you know, someone like Ayanna exactly. Presley wrote, yep. you know, you, you can't quite do that um, looking like he looks. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's fair. Um, I think, again, they could have done a better job emphasizing that's why he was running. I don't think that was ever fully articulated. But you said, like, when you point to a Presley outseating a Capuano, you know, a lot of that is because, you know, not that they have huge ideological differences, although Presley ran to the left of Capuano, but that, you know, she lives in a majority-minority district and people want representatives that look like them. And I think that's totally fair. And, you know, we, we've talked about this, you know, off-air a bunch where, you know, ultimately all these big races, whether it's Kennedy, Markey, Neil Morris, Lynch, Goldstein, like all these big Democratic races are all between a bunch of white people. And um, it wasn't necessarily that minorities lost these races, but they weren't in them at all, um, which is arguably a bigger issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, up and down the 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 ticket, there's there, I mean, this time around, there was there was not a single <laughs> no, face no, yeah. that was non-white. Um, and. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly something to, to note that in, in a state with nine congressional seats, every single one of them held by a Democrat, only one held by a minority, and the fact that in a primary season you don't have a single minority candidate for arguably like the most progressive or one of the most progressive uh, states in the country. And that's, a, that's certainly something that we have to, you know, people who ascribe to the progressive movement have to understand that it's not it's not enough to say that you're sort of fighting for certain causes that that really should garner you the the kind of attention and and the votes frankly from the minority community without having any minorities at the table. And I think we talk about like people wanting to vote for people who look like them. It's not it's it, it is certainly who look like them, but also live in the places that they live, 
struggle in the same struggles that they've struggled and can actually bring that point of view to Congress. I mean, I think that's that's really the the impact of diversity is you can't have people who don't understand the problems and the root causes of the problems and obviously the impacts of the problems um, trying to fix the problems. And I think that's been a huge issue for progressives, uh, you know, throughout the like the last half of this, you know, the past century. Yeah, and I, we're going to continue on that theme in a little bit. I think I just want to wrap this part of the discussion by saying, you know, as quickly as everybody's throwing dirt on Kennedy's grave here, he's a 39-year-old congressman who is very well-liked, got 44% of the vote in a competitive Senate race. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see where he goes from here. I certainly don't think this is the last we've heard of him. Uh, we talked last week, if Biden wins, there's a strong possibility Warren's getting called into the cabinet in some position. So that would be a fascinating race. But um, I guess kind of to be determined where Kennedy goes, it's a, certainly a big loss for him you know, in his career. But I don't think this is the last we'll hear from Joe Kennedy. Yeah, I, I certainly agree on that point. I think he was unable to differentiate himself much from Markey, but I think in part that's that's by design. He's sort of reading the future of the Democratic Party and, you know, it would be hard to go to the left of where Markey is today sort of in American politics. And so his option was, was really to follow the same. But the still on the road. So I wanted to pivot now from Massachusetts to, to my other favorite state um, in in Wisconsin and, and what's been sort of unfolding there over the past couple of weeks. So following um, the protests, following another police shooting, um, there was an, essentially an, an incident where um, a young man from Illinois had driven up to Wisconsin um, and he ended up killing two people and wounding another person um, and has now uh, sort of become uh, an interesting example of how people can view the same set of facts and come to a different set of conclusions. So we both watched um, a, a Washington Post kind of uh, compilation of uh, actual uh, on-the-scene videos of, of this gentleman, his name is Kyle Rittenhouse, um, throughout that night. And I wanted to get your take on it because um, I think the things that will have jumped out to me will be very different than what, uh, than what you saw. Yeah, so it's remarkable that so much of this was caught on video. So there was... You, know, you never in incidents like these have a backstory. And we have a full backstory on this kid. And I'm going to call him a kid throughout the whole thing because that's, that's what he's 17 years old. And I know, you know, it's, he's kind of on the line of an adult and I'm sure that'll be argued in court of how he should be tried. But, you know, I've worked with kids for years. And I mean, 17 years old, he's a kid. Um, so the I was fact, a kid until 25. So Yeah, I might still yeah. be a kid. But yeah. uh, so the fact that we have video of this kid being interviewed hours before we have cameras following him and others like him around. And then in the video that you're talking about, you know, multiple angles from reporters, from cell phones of, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse armed with a 
you know, semi-automatic you know, machine gun. Uh, I don't know, I'm not that knowledgeable of guns, so it might not be exact description, but uh, a, a fairly serious firearm. Uh, walking the streets of Kenosha, uh, there are protests ongoing. The protests are largely peaceful, but there's, you know, violent elements of it. There are definitely parts of the city that are on fire. Uh, and... You know, at various points, he, he seems to be getting into an, an argument with a man. They run behind a car. We hear gunshots. And then we see this man, you know, fall to the ground. You know, Kyle goes off running. Uh, he comes back in the picture a little bit later. We hear him on a, a cell phone uh, ostensibly saying, I just shot someone. Uh, he then starts to run away from the scene and is followed uh, by several people. Uh, someone takes a swing at him. He trips he falls to the ground he's got his gun you know he's on it's it's a it's terrible in so many ways you know this kid here armed on the ground surrounded by people who are coming after him he's got his gun cocked someone comes after him shoots them that person dies another person comes up this person also appears to be armed with a handgun shoots that person too uh so this case i don't think in court is going to be argued on the facts right the facts i think are fairly well established right within some margin of error. The, the, the way it's going to be argued is really kind of um, motive and sort not the right word, intent though, right? And I think, you know, Rittenhouse is going to, Rittenhouse lawyer is going to make a strong case for self-defense. And that's certainly, as you alluded to, he's become a cult-like hero in the conservative world, certainly in the conservative online world. Uh, but, you know, his defense fund has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars in a similar way that, you know, victims of police shootings have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, not on the other side, but it's, you know, people hold these people up almost as, as heroes now. Um, so in terms of watching the video, I guess before we even get there, I would say my opinion is that he shouldn't have been there. So I'm glad we can definitely agree on the fact that you know, there's absolutely no reason for him to be there. Um, well... <laughs> I'm not going to concede that point yet. Right. But well, yeah, yeah. definitely no. Well, okay. Or I guess the interesting thing that 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 you said is that you know this case will be litigated on the fact of whether or not what he did was was in self defense, and I think that concept of self defense um, is something that we've seen come up many times um, in this country, and I think it's really interesting in that it really is not a universally applicable standard. And what I really want people to start to consider, if you concede that this particular event is in fact self-defense, what does that actually mean for our society in general, right? So when I heard, when I hear that, you know, his main defense here is going to be self-defense. And, you know, if you, if you look at the very, like the exact things that happened and cut out all of the other contacts, you could very easily say that like he was falling on the ground. Some guy was swinging at him. Like, you know, what other choice did he have? Well, here's the thing. The only people who have killed people at these rallies in self-defense or whatever it was are people who've showed up with guns, right? So the fact that it's a genuine threat of people like beating somebody else to death, it is... All right, so that's that's kind of one thing. But the other thing is, I don't think you can cut out the context of the event, right? He drove up from out of state with an in, 
intent purpose, right? An AR-15, it's an assault rifle. That's what AR stands for, right? It's not a self-defense rifle. You don't use that gun unless you're planning on killing people, not scaring them off, not doing other things. Like, that's what that gun's intent is to do. I mean, that's your opinion, right? Like, there are, I would say there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans that own guns like that. that Who don't show up to these rallies. Okay, but you can't just say that he has a gun that's going to, like, he's intending to kill people. I certainly don't think he showed up that night intending to kill anybody. What did he show up there for? Great question. Okay, so when I say that I don't think he should have been there, I don't think he should have been there because this kid is 17 years old. His parents should have been there to, to stop him. He never should have had a gun like this at 17. He's far too young to be doing it. Now, if we just step back and say, why are people there with guns at all? I think that's an argument that I am happy to make, where this is a city that's burning. I'm not nearly going to equate property to human lives. I don't think they're equivalent. But that's what you're doing. I'm not, because people who's, you know, if, if someone goes and burns down where you work or burns down my school, we're still going to have jobs. We don't own small businesses. And so for us to judge people who's who's... But that's not lives. his business. Says says who? It's not his. It's literally not his so business. Then why, he not, drove up from Illinois. Like he, he doesn't have not, anything to do with this business. So in that case, then no protesters should be there because it's not their business either. Uh, no, but we're talking about two different things, right? You just said you did not want to equate property with life. That's like literally exactly what you did, though. That he's willing to kill people he, who are looking to harm. He is. He's Why not. is he there with a gun? What, to what, protect property. Exactly. By doing what? How do you protect property with a gun? You, you shoot show, somebody. Absolutely not. You show up in defense <laughs> and then you assume that people, like, that's why so, people buy guns so in pro, general. So for protesters protest. should show up to these rallies with guns. They're now. absolutely welcome to and they're certainly yeah, going to That sounds like a good idea. I don't, I, I don't think it's, necessarily anybody should be doing it. But this, this is what I'm saying is the implication of saying that it is a good thing for somebody to show up to these places with guns is that what you invite is that... Everybody now shows up with guns. And I think, of course, the NRA would like you to believe and that, you know, as long as everyone has a gun, then no one's shooting anybody. The reality is if everyone has a gun and one person shoots somebody, everybody's shooting everybody. And that's that is something that we have to come to terms with. And the fact the, the real problem, again, is that like it is it is I, I mean, it is what what are happening to these small businesses are horrible things right but we do allow and this is kind of like a personal freedom right so you're you're arguing to me that nobody should have uh you know people should have the right to go stand in front of their business with a gun this is not this is not like he had nothing to do with this like he went there looking for a fight i'm sorry you don't you don't leave illinois to go protect a car dealership you live 15 miles away how many people are there protesting yeah but they're they're literally protesting systemic injustices in this country you're telling me he's going to save a car dealership and that's an equivalent like cause that's ridiculous i'm not saying it's equivalent cause you say the reality is i say the reality is that people like that felt it was necessary, small business owners felt it was necessary to bring these people in to defend their businesses with their own guns, with their friends, with other people that are willing to support them because law and order is not being enforced in these cities. And so when people are just walking down the street and, and, and destroying small businesses and the police have been handcuffed so much by these, by some of these like liberal policies and hands-off mayors, when we're talking about Kenosha or Portland or any of these cities, where if you're not allowing po- police to do their job, then people are going to step in and do it for them. This so what you're asking for is for people to start shooting people in the streets. I, I'm asking for the police to be able to do their job. 
Which is what? Exactly. To, to be able to to enforce they the law. They don't hold each other accountable when they don't when they don't uh, when they enforce the law improperly, right? So why why should people trust them to enforce the law in any instance so, other than protecting property? But that's unbelievable. So you're just saying that police should never be trusted to enforce the law? No, I'm not saying that at all. And in fact, I am saying that the, those people who are there to protect car dealerships should understand that. Uh, either the police take care of this issue or somebody is held accountable after the fact. But that's not what's happening, right? Like right. In- to the extent that that's not what's happening, f- fine. I mean, we can... I would love we, the we, police we, to be able to take can, care of the issue. Can, They're not can, being allowed right. to take care of the issue. But we can argue about the fact that there are certain things that are... Um, that are, A, more important than other things, right? B, the fact that these... F- fires and things are happening it is not nearly as widespread as you would believe based on the news no, that, I agree, I agree that, that you're yeah, watching right so they're 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 kind of two pieces of that then then i really think though unfortunately the broader implication of what you're saying is that if self-defense is afforded to this kid it should also be afforded to other people who shoot people preemptively because if i'm there this isn't a preemptive shot i mean you admit it yourself i mean if we look at strictly the circumstances this kid is being attacked he's on the ground yeah but he already killed somebody right he killed somebody earlier so now you could argue that the people who are trying to get him on the ground are trying to defend themselves because they don't know if he's going to shoot more people you don't know that he just shot somebody everybody just said he just shot somebody someone is like that's not what happened i'm sorry if somebody else was there with a gun and decided to shoot this kid because he just shot somebody else I don't understand how you could fault him for that. For him thinking, I mean, it, with an AR-15, we know how long it takes to discharge that magazine, right? It's like 10 seconds. He could shoot like 50 people in that area, right? These are the guns that we think are appropriate for people to have on the streets. We, we won't argue Except that point. We, we won't argue that point right here. But but if that's the case, if you know that, then I don't understand how you could tell me that I'm not committing self-defense by by shooting this person before he has an opportunity to pick up that gun and shoot somebody else. Maybe maybe I if if all we have to do is argue about the intent of the person that I killed, right? All all I have to tell you is that I thought he wanted to kill me, and if we accept that as self-defense as we did in George Zimmerman's case against Trayvon Martin, right? An unarmed teenager walking around in his own neighborhood, yeah. right? So this is <clears throat> the argument for self-defense. I think the biggest issue is is that we like to use it when it is a person on the right. When it is a black individual, they don't get afforded the same ability to defend themselves in these cases, right? If you're resisting arrest uh, against an officer who you legitimately think this guy might kill me if I let him like take me to the ground, is that not a form of self-defense? Is that not something that somebody should be allowed to do? And and then he gets killed by a police officer and everyone's like, well, he shouldn't have been resisting arrest or he was a criminal. Well, let's, I mean, if we talk about this kid, right? He's 17 years old, should not have been having that firearm. So he was in effect breaking the law, a criminal in this case. Should he have been allowed to defend himself then? So two parts here. One, I think everyone should be afforded the right to defend themselves. I think that's what we're seeing in the Breonna Taylor case, right? Where, you know, people are shooting through this guy's door her boyfriend he fires back i think he absolutely has the right to do that and and everyone who believes in self-defense should be supporting that guy on the other hand i am never going to advocate for people to resist arrest i don't believe that's like a a reasonable form of self-defense 
I mean, if you believe that your life is in danger, as many black men in this country have well reason to believe, right? It doesn't, it really doesn't matter if it's 1% or 5% or 0.1%, right? If, if we know that this is happening and police officers are not being held accountable, which is status quo today, I think we can agree on that, right? Outside of name one police officer who's killed an unarmed person that's gone to jail, you can't except for maybe that woman in Dallas who like shot a guy in his own apartment while he was eating ice cream. Like that's the one case where we've gotten in a conviction, right? So if, if that is the, the world that you inhabit, I don't, the, the, the fact of the matter is that, that the quote unquote resisting arrest is always something that enables somebody to kill you seems a little bit absurd to me. And it seems like it doesn't. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that point. I'm not advocating officers resort to lethal force almost unless their lives are in danger. But for you to almost sit here and advocate, say that people resisting arrest are are doing it in self-defense, I don't think that's a legitimate argument. Uh, Well, all right. So I think think, um, think that's not exactly the point that I was trying to make. I think more so the idea that self-defense is not a universally applied concept. I totally agree with that. And I would say the and, same thing for gun rights, right? Is that like you have Lando Castile um, who had right. a gun. You didn't have the conservatives running out Absolutely. to, to and run that's up wrong. his. That is wrong. And you know, the fact <laughs> his that bank account. Rittenhouse is you know, walking down the street with an AR-15 after you know, when the police are rushing the other way and no one stops to apprehend him, you're damn right that if, this, if he was a black 17-year-old walking, They would have shot him. Yeah, I mean, you never know. Yeah, but so uh, I think I think, but I think those double standards are totally fair to point out, and I totally agree with them. But that doesn't change my underlying philosophy. My philosophy would just be like we should treat Philando Castile the same way that we're treating Kyle Rittenhouse and enable people to defend themselves. Yeah, I, and I think that that's I I think what you're essentially saying is that everyone should be out there with a gun trying to figure out the intent of other people, whether or not they're going to shoot them or not and decide do i shoot you first um i mean i'm not saying that at all no 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 but but i'm saying the ramifications of treating this case as if it was pure self-defense as if he didn't drive from a different state to protect a business that's not his own as if he wasn't sort of antagonized by like the you know we're we're the trump guys that are gonna like whatever it was that he was thinking he was doing um and, and like getting deputized by the police department as they thank him for like what I literally don't know, um, I think is I, I think is a real a recipe for a problem. And I think I think we should be, you know, slightly uh, thankful or understanding that it hasn't been, you know, right wing folks with guns and left wing folks with guns for the most part, it's mostly been one-sided. And I think if you get to a point where people are starting to say, hey, wait, these fights seem unfair, that we're gonna start showing up to them with guns. He was 17 years old, right? So regardless of whether he went there with good intentions or not, he could have, I mean, he did kill two people and did something else, right? Nobody else did that, he did that. So if you start adding more people who are going to with good intentions or bad intentions, maybe I'm going to go to just protest, protest, protect the protesters. Um, and I'm going to bring my assault rifle there. And now we have two people with assault rifles. 
is only the person who's still alive after that indicate or altercation allowed to say that, you know, I was, I was, uh, committing self-defense or that was in self-defense. I think it's a real problem when we think about what it means for us and how we deal with issues. And I, and I, I do think I'm probably underappreciating, um, the impact that, that sort of this localized destruction can have in these places. Um, and I, in in many ways, I I also know that they have really nothing to do with the with the protests themselves. Um, but it it just it doesn't seem like the the right it doesn't seem like the appropriate response, right? Like, it, at the end of the day, if we live in a world where people have to, the only way that they can protect their property or things like that is by walking around with guns. We're in an America that no one wants to live Yo, in. So I totally agree. But I think the problem here is that people feel that way because law and order writ large doesn't necessarily exist right now in many of these places, right? And so that's why people feel that they need to do it. And the the couple in St. Louis that was, you know, ridiculed and ended up speaking at the RNC, um, that stood outside their house with guns, right? Like, it's totally ridiculous on the surface to do that. But if people feel like that's what it takes to defend their property, I mean, this is an American belief since the time our country was founded. You can disagree with it, but there's a reason it's the Second Amendment. There's a reason that in June, 4 million guns in the United States were sold. Record sales the last few months. This is... This, <laughs> well. this, this is not like an isolated belief that like the the right wing is pushing here. There's a there's millions of Americans that feel like, hey, if the police are not going to protect me because they can't because they're hamstrung by officials, then I'm going to protect it myself. And again, it's a I think that's as American as it gets, like an individual liberty to All right. to protect my my property. Uh, again, two very different things to protect your own property, to own a gun in your own house for your own self-defense than to like go to it. Why do you think militias existed for hundreds of years though? Don't start equating this to what militias are like what these but, militias but are doing today. That is absolutely absurd. Their communities coming together to protect their own property. All right. So like even if I grant you that that is what they're doing, which I I'd probably argue that um, a little bit more if I had more time. Um, it it's still kind of the fact that you have a group of people that are coming together to fight for property that, I mean, for better or for worse, really has no value to the people who are fighting for it. Um, you know, something happens to a car dealership 10 miles down the road. I'm sorry, you're not really going to notice. But, okay, they're protecting their community. Fine. What is probably more upsetting, though, is that these same people aren't out there fighting for their fellow citizens whose rights are being infringed upon. Yeah, I, I, I totally concede that point. Um, I think that people ha should be consistent um, that, you know, we say that we have a right, one of the first two things we have to say, you know, in the Declaration of Independence, right to life, right to liberty, right to pursuit of happiness, but that was just property that we took from Locke, right? So life, liberty, and property, those are the things that we say. So if, if life is being taken away, if liberty is being taken away, if property is being taken away by the government, you should be there protesting that. To protest... To, to, to stand for property and not stand for life or liberty is totally hypocritical. Um, and I'll give you that. I would I would argue to stand for life and liberty and not stand for property would be, you know, equally as hypocritical. But I think that's going to just, we're going to disagree there. Yeah. I mean, I guess the final thing I will say is that it was written in that order, or the way I read it is written in that order intentionally, that the first thing first is life, the second thing is liberty. And if we want to, you know, 
for me, not even a distant third is property. But I, I think that really sort of leads us well into, into kind of this next discussion. So obviously what we've been seeing is that, and it didn't really start with the RNC, but but was definitely amplified in the RNC, is that um, given what's been going on and, and the unrest in, in Portland and now Kenosha, um, the Trump campaign has really been trying to uh, bill themselves as the law and order candidate. And um, I thought Biden had a, had a pretty accurate, in my opinion, um, statement when he said, uh, you know, f fires are burning and we have a president who fans the flames. He can't stop the violence because for years he has fomented it. Um, and so I'm wondering how you address or how you think about Trump as a law and order candidate um, in face of the fact that a lot of what he does is to kind of fan the flames of, of this dissent. Yeah, it's fascinating. I. And it's fascinating in the sense that if you step back and just looked at what was happening in the country, which is civil unrest all over the country, several cities in tremendous turmoil, violence, you know, um, rioting, murders happening in, in many of these cities, you would say that the ideal law and order candidate would be the outsider coming in and saying, hey, whoever's running the government in the country right now is failing. There's, there's no law and order anywhere. It's a mess. And so to see the incumbent president who's presiding over this chaos in many of these cities take the law and order mantle is just fascinating and like the mental gymnastics to do that is impressive not shocking for this administration but it's really interesting because i think writ large people look at the republican party as the quote quote unquote law and order party right we are you know military we are uh, police we are you know law and order for better or for worse i mean nixon's the one that came up with it and Trump is running on that tradition. And I think it's a tremendously effective campaign position. Is it authentic and genuine? No. But I mean, what about Trump is? Like, if we're just looking at it as a campaign strategy, yeah, I think it's a damn good one. Yeah. Um, certainly playing on the fears of the electorate has proven to be much more effective than than really any other strategy in the last yeah, and i mean who know, has he 40. lost and who's he need like white suburban women what better to like your your communities are burning look at the news right, right. i'm the guy that can stop it right um i'm i i think there are two things that are that stand out to me um especially as he is at the same time trying to say that that he's the candidate that's done the most for the black community since lincoln to also be the candidate that's going to use law and order, like as you as you alluded to, uh, sort of the original uh, claim coming from Nixon, who, you know, as history has shown, used the law and order mantle to enact, you know, systemically racist policies across the United States that specifically targeted black and brown communities to in effect, you know, delivers like that, the, the kind of the whatever peace or tranquility that the suburban white voter is looking for. But uh, 
really has sowed the seeds for what we are seeing today. Like a lot of, and, 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 and this is not to, to paint the Republican parties as the owners of this. Obviously when the Democrats came into power, they did so in large part by doubling down, uh, with the crime bill. Um, so this, this is not really <clears throat> just a strict indictment of the right, but I do think that there is something interesting about using, uh, the terms law and order, because in reality, it doesn't really mean like law and order for everyone. It 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 fundamentally means that we're going to deal with our societal problems by locking people up in jail so that they can't bother the rest of us. Yeah, I don't disagree with anything you said there. And, you know, the irony of law and order being used by Nixon and Trump, who are, objectively speaking, two of the presidents who have cared least about laws, right? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I would really agree with everything you're saying. But, again, I'll come back to that point. Like, this isn't necessarily something that Trump believes in. It's something he believes is a winning message for him. So how do the Democrats approach this issue, um, knowing that sort of bringing up the fact that a lot of Trump's rhetoric is is meant to, whether overtly or, or more sort of implicitly, kind of incite racial fears. Like how do Democrats kind of approach this issue while saying, you know, one, you can't trust an incumbent who's telling you he's going to bring you law and order when today we have no law and order. And two, we think we can do it, but he's going to tell you that we can't because... Yeah, yeah dude, I feel like this is what like people that get paid way more money than us are sitting in rooms like tearing their hair out, like figuring out like Trump is just such an anomaly. Like, how do you be the guy that will just lie to your face and everyone believes it and <laughs> vote for him? You know, uh, I will say if you're a Democrat, you've got to be thanking God that you have Biden in this situation. Right. If you had Sanders or Warren or any, really any other candidate, this charge would stick. But Biden gets up there and he gave a speech, you know, a couple weeks ago where he said, do I look like a radical socialist? He's not. Like, he's as far, as much as the right is going to try to paint him as that, he's not. And, like, if you want to paint him as a Trojan horse, as a guy who's just kind of letting in ideas behind him, that might stick. But Biden, the man, the guy's been around for 40, 50 years. We know that he is not some lawless guy. He, he was as big of a supporter of the crime bill as anybody, right? Right. Uh, so I think from the Democratic perspective, I think Biden's the right guy to have here where he goes out and he really connects with black voters as much, if not more, than any candidate since, well, Obama, but Clinton too, right? Uh, and I think that means a lot because he can also get up there and, and condemn rioting and condemn looting and say that this is not what we stand for as a country and I will not stand for it as a president. And it feels authentic to me. And so I think that's the best way is for Biden to continue to condemn the very small percentage of people that are out there uh, causing this chaos and continue to stand up and support for support, you know, Black Lives Matter and the, the movement, the, the change for the push for systemic change and the, the peaceful protests, which are, you know, the overwhelming majority of them. He's the right guy for the job. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know that the message is is resonating with people who are inclined to vote for Trump. Um, I think what you've kind of established as like the 
the strategy of of saying that the lawlessness is basically in democratic cities and they won't accept my help and whatever um i think it is the lie (laughs) yeah yeah well yes um Yes and no. I mean, I think it, it doesn't quite capture the, the full story. Like, in, Of course not. It's, yeah, it, it's not the point. Yeah. Right. It, it, it is yeah. not the point. Um, I, th- I mean, I think, yeah, Biden is, as a person, the best defense that the Democratic Party has. And I think in part the reason, like, aside from, you know, calling him sleepy, that Trump is really trying to go after people like Kamala Harris. Um, be- he hasn't gotten anything to stick to Biden. No. Because there's, I mean, his his normal attacks are really ineffective against a guy who has been Everyone pretty knows middle, who he is. middle of the yeah. road. And, yeah. Um, and there's no doubt about <clears throat> that guy's character. I've always wondered how it is that the Republican Party has been able to monopolize this idea of patriotism when, in many ways, as anybody does, you, you sort of pick and choose the ideals and when you want to stand for them. Um, but the Republican Party specifically has been able to say, when we stand for things, it's patriotic. And when we criticize, it's because, you know, we love America. And when you do it, you hate America. Go back to where you came from. Right? Like how I, – I don't I – don't, I, I have a, a lot of trouble squaring that. And I think about that in the context of, of law and order because – you know, a lot of what Trump is saying is that we're going to deal with these issues not by actually dealing with the sort of the root causes of a lot of the civil unrest, but actually through a military force, which you were asking about where like the idea of militias came from. It was <laughs> we would keep a standing militia if our government ever turned against us. And so in many ways, like that the idea that a, a government who is not really welcome in these democratic cities uh, would send in troops, uh, to me, that would be the reason for militia, not really what we're seeing elsewhere. But that's, you know, potentially another discussion for another day. <laughs> Goodness, you made a lot of I know. I there. got this is uh, going to be a problem. All right. So one of the points you brought up in there was that Republicans are just going to kind of deal with the the result, the aftermath of what's happening, these kind of quote-unquote law and order issues and not really deal with the root of the issue. And I think that's a totally fair point, a totally fair criticism of uh, Republicans in general, Republicans' approach to some of these systemic problems, the, their failure to address them. I think where a lot of this goes to Trump's advantage, and when I say a lot of this, I mean a lot of the, the rioting, the chaos. chaos and again, yeah. it's... A, you, all, you said this earlier, and I want to totally agree with you, is that this is a, a tiny, tiny percentage of what's happening. But the narrative is out there that our cities are burning at this point. And for Trump to claim the law and order mantle, he's able to now run on that and not even have to engage with these the core issues here. And I think that's just a huge mistake. And if you are someone on the left, you've been doing this consistently of you know, trying to encourage people to be peaceful and denouncing these this very small fringe of people that want to come in and be violent, but that is just a killer because you've given Trump an escape here. He doesn't have to deal with these these shootings of unarmed black men in America that's writ large. He should have to deal with that, and he's not going to have to because it's now become a debate about law and order, which is why I started the conversation off by saying, yeah, do I think this is a legitimate position that he has? Not really, but is it an effective campaign position? I, yeah, 
you're damn right I think it is. So, you know, that's what the campaign has become about, unfortunately, which is an advantage to Trump. You know, Kellyanne Conway, is, as she was leaving her position in the White House, pretty much said that, you know, the more America burns, the better it is for Trump right now, which is a terrible, wild thing to say, but is a true thing to say. And I think over the last two weeks, this race has gotten closer. And if this stuff continues, it's going to continue to get closer. Yeah, I... I th- I th- I think I I really wanted to to get into that idea um, that one Trump kind of gets to avoid the actual issue, but in many ways this is not just a Trump uh, problem. I think I think there are two phases to this problem. One, um, the Democrats have a very difficult time. Uh, presenting problems to tackle um, because rather than simply providing a, a, a proposed solution to a problem, they spend time litigating whether or not this problem is a problem. And I think the Republican Party has been pretty effective in keeping the conversation stuck on, is this thing that the Democrats are talking about actually a thing? Um, and I don't know how uh well one i think i think people should be able to agree that if problems are in fact problems and we're not addressing them that that is not good for the country as a whole uh but two how do um democrats start to uh rather than saying when trump says i'm for law and order and they're for chaos rather than saying no, 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 no for we're law and for order. law and order. Like, what are we talking about? Yeah, what are we, why are yeah, we doing I mean, that? I think he's great about dictating the agenda, and he has yeah. been for five years at this yeah. point, right? I mean, it's his biggest strength as a yeah. candidate is he drives the news cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And he can, he knows that, like, I, he actually doesn't have to deal with anything if he doesn't want to. He can just say something else ridiculous, and everybody will jump on that and literally just forget about what he, whatever he was doing before that they were upset about. And I think it's actually been, um, it's like, you know, a burglar, rather than trying to sneak around all of the alarms, actually sets off every single alarm, and then you think they're <laughs> yeah. all false alarms. It's actually, it's a incredibly, it's a, a brilliant strategy, which is one of those things that, like, I wonder if Democrats are, again, underestimating him. And then I think about, you know, a little bit what that's what's come out with the Woodward article, where he was basically like, yeah, yeah. I, I knew coronavirus is a lot worse than I was saying to people. And then I wonder if people have already accepted the fact that he lies and they've just twisted it this to say that he nothing. lies yep. in my yep. uh, for my benefit, then yeah, it doesn't do anything nope. again. Yeah, I think once he said during the during the primaries even um, in 2016 that like I could go out to Times Square and shoot a bunch of people and my uh, my followers would not stop following me or you know vote for anybody else he's not Um, wrong i don't i don't think he's wrong and i think that's i think i think that's a little bit scary and i don't understand quite how this race is gonna be well i i think that that is you know it's it's something that really fires up the base and maybe we should just wrap by sort of asking you again like where do you think uh, the election stands today. Um, like, what is the, where are we at? 
Yeah, I still think Biden's got a, a healthy lead because I think he's got so many states in play that in, whether you're talking about Florida, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Nevada, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, yeah, I think he's got so many states in play that uh, a lot has to go wrong for him. Like he, he's going to have to lose a lot of these coin flips to lose. Which doesn't mean it can't happen, but I think you know, he's definitely in the driver's seat. Like I said earlier, I think it's gotten closer. I, mean, I think this this kind of knife fight over white suburban women is is going to be really important. Um, you know, it's you have Democrats overwhelmingly requesting like mail-in ballots compared to Republicans. Uh, but I just read today that both Florida and Nevada moved right. They went from, you know, likely Dems to toss-ups. So I think this the risk race is still very much up in the air. Um, I still give Biden a, a strong lead. I would say it's 60-40 Biden at this point. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm d- definitely far up in the toss-up uh, realm, specifically because of the, the electoral college issue. I think I read recently that um, in order for, for Biden to sort of be a shoo-in, he's going to have to win... Um, the popular vote by probably close to four and a half to five million votes. Um, I think Hillary Clinton won two, two point seven, yeah, something yeah, like that last time around. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, um, because it's not strictly on sort of the pulse of the general population, it's very hard to see, you know, what's happening in Wisconsin does that really affect people in Ohio far more than, you know, it affects other people? And that's probably, um, and that's probably true. No, I mean, I almost say definitely true. People in the Midwest can see themselves in Minneapolis, see themselves in Kenosha, um, recognize those communities as their own. Um, and yeah, Democrats have not been able to do a good job of, uh, getting it back to the the heart of the question. And I think, to your point, part of it has been, and, and while I do agree that, that the violence and, and sort of the burning has been a very limited subsection of the hundreds of thousands of people who have come out to march, by continuing to harp on the fact that it is small is actually not the right strategy because it's basically minimizing, you know, almost I'm basically contradicting some of my arguments from earlier, but it is minimizing the impact that it's having on these communities and how it makes people feel in terms of their own safety. When the idea should be, yes, we know that this is happening and this is horrible, but the solution is not to revert back to, to just clamping down on it through some really authoritarian type measures. If we have some civil unrest because a portion of our population feels like they don't get to enjoy the same freedoms and liberties and rights that ordinary that every other American gets. That we should figure out how to solve that part of the problem and not uh, and and you know understand that it could be a messy process in that way. Yeah, and we still have the three debates coming up, and it'll be very interesting to see how those debates go. If Biden's able to frame it in that way, I think you know he's got a really good shot to win. If Trump's able to continue to dictate the narrative, I think it's going to continue to go down the wire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll, I guess we'll see.
be remiss if we didn't um, talk about September 11th this week. And it's been 19 years, which is um, amazing uh, that it's been so long. You know, we were in eighth grade when it happened. It's, you know, the ultimate where were you? You remember exactly where you were when it happened. And as opposed to discussing my personal memories of the day or your personal memories of the day, and we all have, have stories, I think the thing that stands out to me from a larger perspective is, you know, that was as dark a day as, you know, this country has had in my lifetime. And it was followed by a lot of really bright days. Yeah, and um, to, to read about and hear about uh, the heroism of, um, so many, you know, police officers, uh, firefighters, uh, people like Wells Crowder, who's like the red bandana kid mm-hmm. from from uh, BC, BC uh, to the, the the people on Flight ninety three, the individuals who 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 you know sacrifice themselves for others, um, even President Bush after who was you know not everyone's cup of tea, but uh, you know the speech he gave after which you know, was really trying to bring America together. You've never seen, I, in my whole life, never seen so many American flags and people be so good to each other. And, um, you know, looking at, you know, that day, those, the weeks that follow compared to today, you know, I, I, I fear that if it happened today, that, you know, we wouldn't get nearly the same coming together. I fear, I fear that it would be um, just finger pointing in the blame game and, I don't know. I think that it, it honestly, it's made me sad, you know, this week thinking about that, where I don't even know if an event like that would bring us together anymore and, and speaks to some really deep divisions in our country that um, are not good. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I don't, I don't really have a point here. Just, you know, as terrible as that day was, there was so much good that came, came out of that and how, and how people treated each other. So yeah, that, I don't know, that's all I got there. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be a little bit tough for me to follow up I think with what I have to say because September 11th for me w- was something that that had a has a very different impact on my life I think in with my rose colored glasses I can see a, a lot of what you're talking about um, and certainly the acts of heroism on the day itself um, you know there's no taking away from and and some some of that is really just like the best of the american spirit right the red bandana guy running up and down the stairs in that building and saving people i mean it it is um it is just these incredible incredible stories of selflessness and helping one another um but i guess the you know the reality for me in, in many respects was a little bit different you know i looked a lot like um those the terrorists on those flights and um you know my parents my dad especially uh was like you know there are people out there who are very angry right now um and they're looking for someone to blame for this and and you kind of fit that bill i had like a kind of a dirty mustache at that point i couldn't quite grow a beard um but but that was something that i was very cognizant of my you know treatment on planes after that um something that i thought a lot about um in the years after 9-11 and and something that has probably shaped my view of a lot of sort of American politics and American um, entanglements in foreign affairs after the fact um, because I, 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 I wouldn't necessarily say that I 
felt all of those feelings. Um, I think what what is interesting in that you're when you're saying that you know if something similar happened, would we not all come together? And I've actually seen some comparisons around this time to the coronavirus, like this sort of existential threat. You know, terrorism and a virus are not in exactly you know they're not really the same things. Um, but rather than sort of figure out together how we're going to deal with this thing, we're actually arguing about is this thing a thing at all or not. Um, I think that is. I I'm not entirely sure. So to, for some to some extent, I think it is you know, worlds apart from, from where we were on 9-11. I mean, a lot of politicians today are sort of happy, you know, use their, their no votes on the Iraq war as kind of a badge of honor, but they were in the minority. And, and in, in many respects, if they were the deciding vote, it, it might be a different story, right? Um, you know, they were able to, to take their principled stance because everybody else was like, you know, this is what we're going to do. Um, and we came together to do that. And, you know, that is for better or for worse, something I was very much against at the time still, uh, have feelings about it, but it did show, um, if we had kind of a common cause or a common goal that, that we could across the aisle, figure out what we were going to do about it. Now, it doesn't mean that we make the right decisions, but it does mean that we kind of can come together to do something about either making America a better place or a safer place. Um, and so that's, in in a very weird way, um, thinking about 9-11 does give you a lot of hope. Yeah, and I do think it's important, especially as people that experienced it with real memories of it get older. And there's a whole generation of people that either weren't alive for it or, or don't have any memories of that. And all of they have, they've really seen in their experiences has been division. And for us to be able to hold on to that memory, I think is really important. And not, like you say, and I think my apologies because I spoke from, you know, a very privileged point of view uh, of the time at the weeks after nine 11, but uh, to for us to be able to hold on to that memory and say, like, this is what this country could be at its best, I think it's important to realize that potential still exists. Yeah, and and I uh, I I wasn't I guess definitely not trying to to call you out. I don't not at all. But it was, it's a it's a fair point in something that you know I I don't know that I reckoned enough with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's uh, that's what we're here to try and do. Yeah, so, so I guess we could wrap there and for all the listeners out there. But no, honestly, like, <laughs> thanks thanks to, you know, we don't, we're living this time where, you know, police officers in particular don't, are, are not viewed in a particularly favorable light. But, um, you know, there are people, NYPD um, and, and, uh, and NYFD that um, gave a lot that day um, for other people and uh, their sacrifice in addition to the sacrifice of so many civilians um, should continue to, you know, we say never forget. And, it, you know, we should try to live that. Completely agree.
Keep up. 